The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio on day six of the Boris Johnson government. Guess what? The sky has not fallen in. The ferries haven't stopped running. Food hasn't run out yet and hospitals are still able to dispense drugs. Ah, but that's because we haven't left yet, comes the cry from the Remainers. Events over the last week have got the Europhiles into a right old state and they're doing their level best to try and discredit anything and everything that Boris and his ministers propose. But let's face it, they are running scared and they're running for the hills. The Boris bus is well and truly on a role. This very morning he's setting up a veterans office with the aim of probably looking after members of the armed forces and to put a halt to the prosecution of soldiers as well. Put that together with his pledge to build a proper high-speed rail connection between Leeds and Manchester where it's actually needed and his firmness on no-deal preparations. I'd say he's making things happen at a rapid rate. And he hasn't even been in charge for a week yet. Today he's up in Scotland for a showdown with Ruth Davidson and he's bringing a big bag of money. Can he save the union single-handedly? We'll be finding out. 03444991000. If you are actually Uh, listening in Scotland, we'd love to hear from you because we know that up there we keep finding out that there are polls that say oh yeah, well if there was a second indie referendum we'd definitely be leaving the United Kingdom and we would be an independent country inside the European Union. Well I don't believe it frankly, so I want to hear from people who want to tell me why you think you'd win an indie ref too. 03444991000. Coming up a little bit later on we'll be checking in with the latest editor of Vogue, aka the Duchess of Sussex, who now wants us to listen to her views on feminism and the way the world should be, as long as you're not anywhere near her house, in which case you shouldn't, of course, talk to her unless she talks to you first. Who does this woman think she is? 0344-499-1000 plus. We'll be talking to an MP who's been away in Canada smoking cannabis. Uh, you might find there's quite a lot of people doing that lately. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It's Britain's the fastest growing radio station. of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I'll have to stop adding that bit on at the end, but uh, for any of you who didn't hear that bit, it is Britain's fastest growing radio station. There's a very good reason for it. I'll tell you why. Uh, Because people love listening to people talking about things which don't depress them. And let's talk to Henry Hill now, who's assistant editor at Conservative Home, because there's a bit of a showdown coming up today between Ruth Davidson, uh, who's a very popular leader of the Tories in Scotland, and Boris Johnson, who's an even more popular leader of the Tories in London and the rest of the country. Henry, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. How do you think this is all going to go? Because Ruth Davidson is in a position um, where she's very much in charge of her own brief. She's very much uh, a popular figure in Scotland. Uh, At some point or other, she was even asked if she'd like to run to be leader of the party overall in the whole United Kingdom. But, of course, Boris Johnson inevitably is her boss, isn't he? Um, Sort of. Uh, Obviously, Ruth Davidson has complete um, autonomy over the devolved responsibilities of the Scottish Conservatives. So when it comes to establishing uh, their policy for anything that's set by the Scottish Parliament, uh, she does her own thing. She also has campaign autonomy in Scotland. So, for example, it's her responsibility to choose candidates, even for Westminster seats. The, The conflict has arisen uh, in part because, obviously, the, the Scottish Conservative MPs, whilst they're elected and they're sort of selected by a process overseen by Ruth Davidson, obviously they answer to Boris Johnson. And so there's a bit of a there's a bit of confusion there. But, yeah, for as long as she's part of the UK Conservative Party, Boris Johnson is, her, is ultimately her party leader, uh, the same as everyone else. Yeah, of course. And as far as her belief and, uh, and longing to be Prime Minister, uh, that's no longer there, is it? Because she made it very clear that she didn't really want to have that kind of responsibility, her, her, her 
her, her personal life would not allow her to become a prime minister. She's she's got a child now. She's more than happy to to be where she is, as it were. So she's not a threat to Boris Johnson as such. But but what will she say to him um, about the way that he's conducting the No Deal Brexit scenario? Well, I think that the the. Ruth Davidson has a tricky, uh, but both of them really have a tricky position because they, they, they neither of them like each other very much, mm. and they have, and neither of them have really put in all that much effort over the past couple of years to fix that. You know, Boris and his team have never shown all that much interest in Scotland until very recently, and the Scottish Conservatives miscalculated a bit because when it looked like Boris Johnson's career ambitions were already over, they did quite a lot of posturing. Um, against uh, him, saying they were going to block him becoming Prime Minister and all of that. And then, of course, the moment his career prospects came back, there was nothing really that they could do. Mm. I think that what he's what she's going to emphasise is that over the past five years, um, she and the rest of the Scottish Conservatives have managed to engineer uh, a quite remarkable political recovery, which a lot of people didn't think was actually ever going to happen. You know, they're the official opposition in the in the Scottish Parliament to the extent that it has one. They've managed to win 13 seats at Westminster when previously the best they've managed was one. Well, that was incredible, seven. wasn't it? I mean, I remember working in Scotland for the Daily Mirror. I was the editor of the Scottish edition um, and seeing myself very much in that kind of role with, you know, I had Piers Morgan as my boss and uh, I was saying to somebody this morning, you know, if he wanted something done, you tended to have to go along with it because he was the overall boss, even though I had kind of responsibility for the local but but he was the only Tory in the village, as it were, when we were up there, David Mundell, because that was the only seat they could win, which was remarkable. Yeah, precisely. And so I think what she'll be doing, what she'll be saying is, look, I've got lots of on the ground experience of, of, of Scotland. Um, I, I, I am a source of good advice for you, Prime Minister, on what you need to do in Scotland. And if you're a, if you're a Conservative who cares about the party up here, please don't do anything which will jeopardise the work that we've done to rebuild the party, especially since after the 2017 election, without that Scottish Conservative recovery, there wouldn't even be a Conservative government. Ruth Davidson really did save Theresa May. And just as much as the DUP, Boris Johnson depends on the Scottish Conservative MPs to, to sustain his government. Well, it used to be said, did it not, that, uh, that the Labour Party would never get into government without all of the Scottish MPs that they had. Um, you can, it's interesting you could now say the same thing about the Tories, because it is so slim, isn't it? I mean, that's the problem. I mean that is the challenge facing facing Boris Johnson. Um, you know, it, it's anticipated, I think, that he he will soon have an overall majority with the DUP of about two. And of course, if um, if the charges against Charlie Elphick and other Conservative MPs go through, then there's a chance that he could end up with his overall majority wiped out mm. completely. Now he's trying to hold out and not hold a general election until after Brexit has been delivered in October. Um, but obviously, if he ends up with no majority at all, that gets more and more tricky. Well, here's what what also gets tricky. In addition to him firing David Mundell as Scottish Secretary, one of his first acts as a Prime Minister last week, um, Ruth Davidson's also told uh, the Mail on Sunday in Scotland, I don't think this government should pursue a no-deal Brexit, and if it comes to it, I won't support it. Well, I think it's interesting that, because I saw that, but then all on Twitter, um, Adam Tompkins, who's a Conservative MSP in, in the Scottish Parliament and is a very close ally of Ruth Davidson, um, then appeared to sort of hedge that a little bit because what he said was there is a world of difference between pursuing and being prepared for yeah. um, a no-deal Brexit. And he said that neither Ruth Davidson nor Boris Johnson are pursuing a no-deal Brexit. It's not what they want. But, and, and this was the crucial bit for me, Tomkins said, we will be leaving the EU on October 31st. We have delayed too long. So I think that really what's what's happening here is it's, it's difficult to kind of pass this out and work out exactly what she means but it looks like she's taking a very strong stand against the idea of the government actively pursuing a no-deal Brexit which of course even Boris Johnson insists he's not doing what isn't clear based on this 
comment from one of her closest allies is what her position would be if we got to October and the question was no deal or no Brexit. Well, that's when it all starts to get tricky. I mean, we've been reading all sorts of stories over the weekend. Lots of interviews, as usual, have been going on. I mean, what's your belief about this, uh, you know, kind of war chest which is being put together, the war cabinet that they're talking about, supposedly going headlong uh, for massive, massive preparation for no deal? I mean, is it a massive bluff? Um... Based on the, some of the people that Boris Johnson has hired, um, it's incre- I, I don't, I don't think I don't think it's a bluff. I think that I he's don't seen, think so either. He's seen what happened with Theresa May when she tried bluffing, um, and you know it works for a while. But then the, the EU, frankly, called Theresa May's bluff, yeah. and then everything fell to pieces. I think that Johnson has realised that even if it's not what he wants, he has to be ready to leave, and he's putting his money where his mouth is with regards to. Uh, saving the United with, with regards to the union, and I think that's really important because, of course, one of the arguments that unionists have often have made, Brexiteer unionists especially, is that currently an awful lot of British money, because we're a net contributor to the EU, a lot of British money goes to the European Union, gets the EU flag slapped on it, and then goes back into Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland as EU funds. Yeah. Um, and so I think that what he wants to do, one of his projects, is to replace. Um, EU funding, as was, with something called the Shared Prosperity Fund, which is an official British-run project, which means that when the United Kingdom government funds uh, new bridges or infrastructure in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, instead of having the EU flag on it, it has the British flag on it. And I think that he's recognising that we need to spend our resources, but also take credit for those resources when they're spent uh, in other parts of the country. Well, exactly right. And this has been a leave argument for many uh, a year, except for uh, people like Theresa May, who never, ever made it. Because I've had plenty of conversations with you, as I'm sure you have, uh, who have said, oh, yeah, but what about all the EU funding? To which I always said, yeah, but it's EU funding that comes originally from here and goes via Europe and comes back again. So, I mean, it's a very good move by him if he does that. What about the business of um, this 300 million, though, that he's now offering around to sort of shore up the union, as it were? Because, of course, the SNP will tell you that, well, now that things have changed and now that there's a possibility of leaving the European Union with no deal, we want to have another referendum for independence. Well, I think the SNP have really undermined themselves because they have been consistently calling for a referendum on independence for the last three years. Um, so it's very difficult for them to suddenly claim that this particular set of circumstances justifies it more than any other. Um, because, you know, Nicola Sturgeon calls for a new independence referendum when the sun rises in the east mm. and sets in the west. <laughs> so I think that the one of the things that we've seen during the, Scottish, during the Conservative leadership campaign is that the unionism of the Conservative Party is much tougher than it was even a few years ago. You know, David Cameron was very lackadaisical about the Scottish referendum. He conceded to Alex Salmond on the timing, and then he panicked and he gave them the vow. Whereas what we saw from Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt was both of them saying, look, I'm not going to give Nicola Sturgeon another independence referendum until, at least until we've navigated these tricky waters and we're safely out of the European Union. And, so and, I think that... Oh, go on. Sorry, I was going to say, what's your data telling you about the actual uh, markup of that? Because obviously an awful lot of polling, more recently, is tending to lean towards independence or at least a better result for the for the independents who uh, want to leave the European, uh, want to leave the UK. I'm not, I'm not convinced though. Well, I, I'm sceptical. I think it's important to, to always to, to treat these polls with a degree of caution because yeah. obviously they, p- people can use polls to send a message um, uh, 
in the middle of a political cycle when, 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 when an election isn't imminent. The important thing to remember is the harder Brexit is, and this is a point Brexiteer unionists have been making for a while, the harder Brexit is, the harder the SNP's job becomes because the old independence offer that they made in 2014 was that because the UK was part of the European Union and, and independent Scotland, they said, would be part of the European Union, they could have the best of both worlds. They could have ongoing frictionless access to the British market and to the European market. If there are uh, tariff boundaries or regulatory dislocation or any other such developments between the British and the European markets, that would mean that suddenly an independent Scotland would have to choose between ongoing access to the British market, which is two-thirds of all its exports, which makes independence pointless, or frictionless access to Europe, but that would involve a huge economic hit from breaking the link to Britain. So uh, it's important not to take these headline figures at face value. If you look at it strategically, uh, Brexit poses real challenges for the Scottish nationalists, which is one of the reasons that in the House of Commons they're so assiduously trying to uh, make sure it doesn't happen. No, quite. Well, we're going to take some calls on that later on as well. Uh, 03444991000, particularly if you're in Scotland and you think you can win an independence referendum for the second time around. Finally, Henry, uh, Mark's out of 10 so far for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. He's only on day six, hasn't been here a week yet, but he's opened a veteran's office, uh, put Johnny Mercer in charge of it, which is going to be a popular move. He's, he's offering to, to, to build a fast, high-speed rail link between Leeds and Manchester, where it's probably needed more than HS2. You know, so far, he's, he's doing some pretty popular things, isn't he? I say, yeah, I think, I think I, I'm a bit of a Johnson sceptic, I have to say, but it's, it's very hard not to get excited by the, by the first days of his space. He's made some good appointments, he's made some very welcome announcements, and he's generally injecting a sense of optimism uh, and purpose back into the government. Yeah. I think the question with, with Johnson is always, can he actually follow through and deliver? But so far, seven or eight out of ten, I think. Very good. I think from someone as very critical as you, Henry, that's very good marks indeed. Thank you very much. Henry Hill, Associate Editor of Conservative Home, uh, giving us the lowdown on the Boris Johnson and Ruth Davidson connection. They're not going to be too friendly, but they're going to have to find some kind of common ground, it would seem to me, uh, in order to come out with a common statement, which they'll be doing later on. Boris Johnson going up to Scotland uh, will give you all of that as it happens, of course, right here on Talk Radio. But we want to hear from some of you, not just about Scotland, not just about Boris Johnson, but about the general first week of the Prime Minister's uh, job, because he's doing what I would regard as a pretty good job. Henry Hill there just gave him seven or eight out of ten, which is massive for any politician, never mind the Prime Minister, who's actually supposed to be one of the most unpopular figures in the country. If you read and listened to the Remainers who hate Boris Johnson, who think he's a misogynist, who call him a racist and all the rest of it, you would think that he was the worst politician that had ever walked the earth. But he's not, is he? He's actually doing something quite remarkable. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls next on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, uh, there are many people in this country who think that cannabis should be legalised. There are many people uh, who think that it would cause the end of all sorts of drug gangs, that it would cause the end of all sorts of illegal activity. There are others, of course, who are not so sure. But what's interesting uh, is that in recent times, we have seen three separate MPs being taken across to Canada uh, by an anti, um, or um, shall we say, an organisation uh, which is behind, uh, shall we say, the, the, the decriminalisation of drugs. And uh, they've gone to Canada to find out whether... The impact of making cannabis, in fact, um, legal uh, is a good thing or a bad thing. Let's talk to Sir Norman Lamb, uh, former health minister, currently chair of the Science and Technology Committee, about the trip. Sir Norman, a very good morning. Welcome. Morning. This is quite an interesting project you got yourselves involved in. Tell us how it came to pass. Well, I was invited along with a Labour and Conservative MP to go to Canada really to see how... Uh, their new legal regulated market for cannabis is working in practice. And 
what lessons we can learn in the UK from that uh, experience, really. Right. And, I mean, basically, the, the it's, a, it's a documentary which is going out, I believe, on uh, on Newsbeat, I think, on, on Radio 1, and it's on the BBC iPlayer as well. Um, yep. What did you uh, what did you expect to find, and what did what what was the most surprising thing that, that didn't happen? Well, look, I, I, I'm a committed reformer. I, I've believed in the case for reform for some time, so it, it wasn't something that changed my mind. It, it, if anything, it reinforced my view that the, the sensible approach to take is to regulate and to. Uh, legalised, taking it away effectively from organised crime, which is what um, controls the market in the UK. Uh, And uh, I think what was interesting in Canada was meeting senior police officers who'd been put onto the working group that had been set up by the government to advise on uh, establishing a regulatory framework. And and these senior police officers had started off very sceptical about the case for legalisation, but have been persuaded that it made sense. It it, uh, relieves the pressure on police forces. It frees up resources for them to pursue serious crime. Uh, But it also undermines the criminal market. Uh, At the moment, we hand billions of pounds every year to organised crime. Uh, We don't take any tax revenue, of course, from it. And there is extreme violence associated with the illegal markets in the UK, and it usually affects the poorest communities in our country. Um, and the really interesting thing that has just emerged in the United States has been a, a study published in an American medical journal, which shows that in the states where they've legalized cannabis, use amongst teenagers in the United States has gone down. And for me, that's the great prize. Uh, I advocate legalization not because i'm into drugs i I, i'm instinctively quite hostile to the risky use of drugs legal or illegal Uh, but i think there's a better approach to particularly protecting young people than the approach we take at the moment and what's the reason do you think or do they know why consumption has gone down amongst young people if it's legalized well if you uh, if you legalize it and you make it available through uh regulated outlets a lot of people who are currently buying uh, through the criminal market will shift and buy legally. Right. That undermines the criminal market. And so, uh, whereas in the UK at the moment, uh, any teenager, for example, can get cannabis wherever they live across the entire United Kingdom. Uh, once you start to undermine the criminal market, if it becomes less profitable, then it diminishes and it becomes harder to access. And just as with uh, cigarettes and alcohol in our country, although, of course, there are some young people, some people underage who drink alcohol and smoke tobacco, we, of course, recognise that, it's uh, it's harder to get hold of it um, underage uh, if it's actually legal and regulated. And, uh, And the evidence from the United States shows that that appears to be exactly what's happening sure and so you're saying that they buy less of it because it's less of it, less freely available in other words it, it, exactly it might also uh, interestingly become slightly less attractive uh, exciting to young people yeah. 
once it becomes legal and regulated, you're not being quite as sort of dangerous and challenging to uh, your parents sure. and to others. And I guess um, if it's like nine o'clock at night and you have to go somewhere to a shop to buy it where it's legal and sold and the shop's not open... Um, then you can't get your hands on it. But interesting, um, I wanted to ask you about um, your experiment while you were there, because I understand you used cannabis oil in the documentary. What, what, what were the circumstances of that? Yeah, I did. So I had heard... Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in the use of cannabis for sort of recreational purposes. Right. I, I get slightly sort of anxious about the idea of a sort of psychoactive effect on you. Mm. So... But I'd heard that cannabis could be very good for helping you to sleep. Uh, of course, if you do a transatlantic flight, you get jet lag. I was conscious that when I came back to the UK, I had a select committee hearing. So I wanted to get some sleep. So I wanted to see for myself, uh, are the claims that people make for cannabis uh, justified? So I bought through a regulated outlet um, with the PBC, of course, filming it all. Um, and I thought, I mean, in a way, it, it sort of demonstrates how ludicrous it is, because the very mundane act of putting a, three or four drops of cannabis oil under your tongue mm. uh, before going to sleep seems to me like a, an unexciting, uneventful sort of thing to do. And yet it is a criminal act in the UK. Uh, and so it rather demonstrates just how ludicrous I think the current rules are uh, in the UK. Uh, Although I think the chances of actually being punished for doing so are very limited. I think that you're right to say that it's technically a criminal act, but there's not much criminalisation going on, I don't think, of anyone doing it. Yeah, but I've got a constituent middle-aged man who uses cannabis uh, for pain relief uh, following a, a very serious injury to his leg. It's the only thing that relieves the pain. Uh, his home was raided uh, and he's ended up with a police caution, which goes on his record. Uh, which probably will make it more difficult for him to visit his son in Australia. And, and does it really make sense uh, in public policy terms for the police to be spending their time dealing with someone who's using cannabis for pain relief? Um, and even though the numbers of prosecutions and cautions are going down, there are still thousands every year across the country, and it's quite a postcode lottery. In some areas, police have effectively decriminalised, such as in Durham, but in other areas, uh, such as Norfolk, uh, you can still end up with a criminal record. Sure. That doesn't seem to me to be very sensible. No, I get that. And I know you've got to go. Just one final point, because I was watching, and you'll be interested in this. Uh, very, I was in California recently, and the stench of, of marijuana smoke was quite overpowering walking down Hollywood Boulevard, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the problems they have there is they're not sure how many people are driving around in cars because it's a very car-driven society, um, who, are, who are stoned, effectively. But the other more interesting thing, I was watching a Channel 4 report the other week, where in Mexico, because of the legalisation of cannabis in most states of, of the western side of America, basically the, the drug cartels have stopped producing marijuana, and now they're producing uh, effectively sort of um, artificial morphine and selling that across uh, the border. And so they've actually gone into a more dangerous drug business than they were in because they can't make any more money out of cannabis. Well, there appears to be evidence that in the states bordering Mexico, levels of violence have gone down, uh, which is a positive thing uh, because of the undermining of the criminal market. Quite whether there is the same market for uh, the sort of substances you're referring to I somehow doubt. Well, have um, a look at this documentary. I, Honestly, it's, it's a real, yeah. real eye-opener. 
Yeah, uh, look, I, I'm, for example, uh, and like you, I don't like the smell of cannabis. Um, but uh, the fact is that in our country now, lots of people are using it and indeed, uh, no doubt, driving after using it. Uh, there should be very tough penalties for anyone uh, using cannabis before driving, just as there are for people who drink alcohol. Um, We've we just had a wonderful example of horrific scenes on a cruise ship where people have behaved appallingly oh, after yeah. using alcohol, which is a legal pro substance. Um, there are worse consequences of alcohol. It's a more dangerous drug in all sorts of ways than cannabis. And it seems to me to, be, to make sense as a harm reduction approach to regulate it rather than leaving it in the hands of criminals. OK. Sir Norman, thank you very much indeed. Sir Norman Lamb, MP for North Norfolk, former health minister himself, currently chair of the Science and Technology Committee. Uh, that particular Canadian trip and the whole documentary, which you can see, as I say, on the iPlayer, uh, was put together by Voltface, which is an organisation we've spoken to in the past a few times. They're uh, an organisation, advocacy organisation, which seeks to reduce the harm drugs pose to individuals and society. I'm not necessarily against the idea of controlling uh, and legalising the sale of marijuana. However, I am worried about what would happen next because basically the drug gangs that deliver the marijuana, the drug gangs that manufacture the marijuana, the drug gangs that make money from the marijuana would just make money from something else, wouldn't they? Which is what they're doing in Mexico. So Norman hasn't seen that report that I saw. But I can tell you, uh, there is plenty of violence in the part of Mexico where they're making the fake uh, morphine and where they're making uh, the crystal meth which they, they transport and smuggle up into the United States of America which is causing more and more deaths in America, funnily enough. So it's not all sweetness and light just because you make marijuana legal. But I want to hear from you on this. 0344 499 We'll take your calls next on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's bad enough when you read a story over the weekend that people, neighbours even, uh, of those uh, uh, royal couple that live in uh, Frogmore Cottage, the place that they did up with 10 bedrooms and new bathrooms and a big copper bath and £20,000 worth of shrubs and all the rest of it, uh, if you happen to run into them on the estate, please do not talk to them, please do not approach them, please do not in any way embarrass yourself by trying to say hello, because that would be awful. Now, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were the darlings of the world for a while, but they are fast now becoming the most unpopular couple in the history of the royal family. I don't think there is any doubt about that. The latest news now is that Meghan Markle has decided that she wants to edit Vogue magazine. And guess what? The quote that I've got here, which we will find very, very amusing indeed, about the fact that she decided to put loads and loads of people on the um, front page, on the front cover, 15 feminists that she admires, right? Uh, apparently she decided not to put herself on the front cover because the editor of Vogue says she didn't want to f appear to be boastful. That's what uh, um, the editor-in-chief, Edward Endenfell, said. She felt it would be a boastful thing to do to put herself on the cover. So instead, uh, she's used the New Zealand Prime Minister, uh, Jacinda Ardern, and also, of course, the climate activist uh, from Scandinavia, Greta Thunberg, who is uh, also known as Saint Greta. Let's talk to Ingrid Seward, uh, who's seen one or two princesses come and go uh, into the limelight, out of the limelight, into popularity, out of popularity. Ingrid, this is getting a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Well, I think, uh, and what I said today was that um, it, it, this is such a coup for Vogue, and really it's just promoting Vogue and its sales. I, I don't know um, if her efforts to highlight issues with women and colour, which are, which are very commendable, will be, you know, I think it's all going to go against her. I think she's, 
probably too soon uh, wading into not really so much of a political, except a lot of these people are anti-monarchists yeah. on the cover, but I think she's just wading into too many issues too quickly. And she isn't a political activist. Um, um, she is a member of the royal family, and I think she's got to decide if she wants to be a duchess or she wants to promote her own career, as it were. Well, forgive me for being old-fashioned here, Ingrid, but I'm not interested in Meghan Markle's view of the world. I'm not really that interested in her view of feminism. I'm certainly not that interested in her view of politics. You know, what makes her think that anybody's interested? Well, I think you probably hit the nail on the head. I think, <laughs> <laughs> without wanting to be too offensive about it, I think, I don't think the British people, maybe this would have been better for American Vogue. Yes. Well, I that I could have understood be. because, you know, she's an actress and she has some traction in America, but we hadn't really heard of Meghan Markle in this country before she took up with Prince Harry. I mean, people say about that show Suits, it's not really a proper TV show, it's just a sort of vehicle uh, for, for her to have been in, because I don't know anyone that's actually ever watched it. Um, well, yes, well, I'm, I'm sure there's a... You know, I've watched it, and um, you know, she, she was very beautiful in it, and it, it was a, a vehicle for her. No, I'm sure you have, but you've watched it as a result of knowing who Meghan Markle is now. I don't think you've oh, watched it true. before. Yes, that's, that's, what that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yes, yeah. absolutely. No, but I think the British people as a whole, not everybody, obviously, don't like being told what to do or what to think. No. And who to like. Exactly. And that is the very essence of the British character. And this whole kind of woke thing, you know, which we talk about all the time now, where you've got to show not only that you care, but that, you know, this is how you care and this is why you care. And, I mean, it's very hypocritical, in my view, to, on the one hand, say to your staff, make sure you tell everybody not to come anywhere near us, make sure you tell them not to talk to us in any way, shape or form, because they haven't really denied that properly, while at the same time charging the taxpayer £2.4 million to do up your 10-bedroom residence, while at the same time taking a load of money for a star-studded kind of uh, wedding in Windsor when they got married, and to tell lies about the, the, the child that you're having together, uh, despite the fact that that child actually is in some way in line to the throne. Well, yes, I can't disagree with you on all of that. Of course, I, don't, I mean, as far as the telling people what, you know, not to approach them and things... Apparently, Harry and Meghan had no idea about this, and it was just someone a bit over-enthusiastic member of a residence meeting, or, or, or a, a speaker at a residence meeting, yeah. so we can't blame them totally for that, because that is just ridiculous. Well, it is, but you can't help but wonder whether that overzealous member uh, of the household did so, because that was the vibe that was coming from them. Well, it is the vibe that's coming from them, and... Um, I think that really the, the royal family should be above politics. This isn't particularly political, but it is, um, you know, it becomes political because, you know, she is telling us what to think. Yes. And as you say, it doesn't make for very comfortable reading and it's very kind of un-British. And to be honest, I mean, I can imagine the Queen sitting there looking at all this stuff going just sort of shaking her head and wondering where it's all going to lead because the one thing the Queen is very good at is judging the mood of the nation and knowing, you know, when to say something and when not to. Well, I've actually, you really hit the nail on the head, judging the mood of the nation. I know that Meghan is appealing to a lot of young people and people of colour, but I don't think she's judging the mood of the nation as a whole. No. Well, also, how could she? She's only been around. Well, also, know, she's, a, she's a member of the royal family. She lives a very privileged lifestyle, much of it, uh, of course, with their own money, but also much of it subsidised by us. You know, she's hardly, you know, in the kind of woke generation of people struggling to be heard, is she? 
No, but I mean, apparently she was struggling to be heard and always spoke out. But I think she should take the advice uh, uh, that Prince Philip gave Diana. Mm. I mean, Prince Philip, of course, has been very outspoken. Yes. Uh, and so has Prince Charles. But, you know, they, they've been around a long, long time. And I think they have more of a right to air their views. Yes. Because they, they've been there, done it. And Meghan is a very, very new member of the family. Mm. But, also, um, it's a big difference. Tell us what the... Remind us of oh, what I'll that tell advice you what he was. Said. He said to Diana that it's dangerous to take personally the attention that comes your way as a member of the royal family. Now, that's very good advice, isn't it? Because, it's very good advice. And also, of course, it's very different for Prince Charles. I remember the hoo-ha, as I'm sure you do, when Prince Charles... Oh, but but let, let me just add this bit. Go on. And he then said, it's your position that puts you in the limelight and nothing else. Yes, also true. Very true. Well, this is the thing. I mean, when Prince Charles was critical uh, of the um, the great carbuncle that was built on the side of the National Gallery all those years ago, I can't remember. Was it Rogers, the architect? That he had yes, I mean, he, he got a real, real... And he really did get it in the neck. But, yes. but also, there's a big difference between, um, you know, an heir to the throne criticising a modern building because it's against what he thinks should be the sort of architecture you see in central London and Meghan Markle telling everybody these are the feminists that I admire the most. I mean, you know, there's just chalk and cheese, isn't it? It certainly is, and it, it's all, it's it's really because it, it's the the feminist that she admires most. I mean, why why, for instance, isn't uh, the Princess Royal on the cover? She's done more for, for uh, save the children and going yeah. to, to these desperate places and helping people very quietly than any of these people. Well, how about the, the Queen? I mean, she's got Greta Thunberg, you know, the sort of teenage activist on climate change. She hasn't got the Queen. Well, I mean, I, don't, I think it w probably wouldn't have been a good idea to put the Queen up there, but she certainly could have put her sister-in-law up yeah. there, Kate, right. who, who, again, gets on with things without making a big song and dance about it yeah. and not pushing it down people's throats. Yeah, but it's all right to put Christy Turlington, supermodel on there, Salma Hayek, you know, highly paid Hollywood actress. You know, well, these are all the people who have got great lives, who are very much fated by the public and very much, um, shall we say, supported by vast amounts of money. Well, I think they are supported by vast amounts of money. I think Salma Hayek has done some sterling work. I mean, she does actually go out to refugee camps and, and help. She actually is a sort of on-the-ground worker. Um, I'm not criticising any of these women, but... I just feel that I don't really feel that Meghan Markle is in the right position to put her views forward. I don't think she should have done it. She's going to have her supporters, of course. But basically, I think it's, I don't think any good is going to come of it. No, I really don't think any good Except is going to come of it. Except for Condé and Aston, sales. Well, quite. But let's not forget as well that most normal women can't afford to buy anything that's in vogue. So the stuff that they'll be looking at, if they are fans of Megan's, uh, anything in there, they won't be able to buy anyway. This is a good point, yes. I mean, I believe she's done an interview. I mean, we, we haven't seen the, the, the edition, so it's unfair to be too critical, but I, don't, I believe she's done an interview with Michelle Obama and, and Harry's done an interview uh, with somebody. So it's sort of mates. It's really her mates, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's it. And, I mean, he's going to be doing some kind of a show with Oprah Winfrey, I believe, um, and I've said this before, and I think I may have even said it to you, Ingrid, when you were on in the past. I think, you know, I'm perfectly happy for the royal couple to do all of these, you know, sort of virtue-signalling works and tell everybody how brilliant they are and wonderful and how much they care. But, I mean, if they're going to continue to be a drain on the, on the, the, the nation, and no matter how small, 
uh, the fact that we have to provide them with protection and all of that, you know, let them give up the royal job and let them go and be philanthropists, let them go live in Hollywood, they can get a nice house in Beverly Hills, they can get their own security, and they can do all this stuff and they can save the world on their own time. Well, you know, that's probably what they would probably quite like to do. Yeah, well, I wish they would. <laughs> I think, I, well, I don't want that, but I mean, I think you'll probably, I think a lot of people rather wish they would. Yeah. And so basically the bottom line about this is Megan, which is your point, not mine, actually, and you may, has misjudged the view of the nation. Yes, they totally have. And people are getting more and more fed up rather than less and less. I think a period of silence and quiet contemplation would be in order. And then, then, of course, there's the other thing that some of the newspapers are pointing out, that, of course, Meghan was far too busy with baby Archie to meet um, Trump yes. uh, and support the Queen at the state dinner, um, but she's not been too busy to spend seven months uh, working out her uh, editorship of both. Yeah, and she but, didn't take much uh, time to decide whether going to Wimbledon was a good idea or, indeed, the uh, opening night of the, the premiere of The Lion King with her good mate Beyoncé. Well, she, I don't think she'd ever met Beyoncé before, but I think she was a great admirer. <laughs> I think what Meghan is doing, poor girl, and I don't know why Harry isn't guiding her more, maybe she doesn't listen to Harry. I don't think she listens to anyone. I don't think she does either. I think she's just putting herself in a firing line, which is going to be very difficult for her to get out of. Yes, and I think she's going to find herself uh, very unpopular. And unfortunately, some American people don't quite understand the British psyche, and I think she's one of them. I think she's definitely one of them. But as I said also, I think this probably would have been much better for American Vogue because, you know, she's the girl that, that became the, the, the ostensible princess and she's got a lot of followers there and I think this would have worked there. Yes, I agree. I couldn't agree more. But I think it's yet another disaster. And also, I think I would ask you this finally, Ingrid, Prince Harry likes to think of himself as the kind of mastermind of PR because he hates the press, by and large, because of what he thinks that they were responsible for with his mother, which is fair enough. But I think I'm told he, he's not somebody who thinks that a PR is a necessity because he knows how to handle the press. And I think he's getting it massively wrong. Um, I don't think that, that Harry is really listening to any advice. And if he is, he's not taking note of it. Yes. Um, but, you know, we love Harry and we certainly loved Harry. He was after the Queen, the most popular member of the royal family. So it's a big fall yeah. to where, where, what his situation is now. And I think people can't quite understand what the, the Sussexes want. No, or, exactly. Or, exactly or, right. Well, we know what they're trying to do, which is admirable, but um, they're not really... I mean, as members of the royal family, they should be... Um, be a bit quieter about it. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Ingrid, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Ingrid Seward, their editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine. Uh, I've just had a text here uh, from somebody saying, I always buy the September issue, both the UK one and the US, but I'm not buying this one. Well, there you go. There's uh, telling you, Harry. You got it wrong, mate. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, I'll tell you who all these people are. Gemma Chan, Adut Akech, Greta Thunberg, Jamila Jamil, Hampstead-born children's TV presenter turned activist. Do me a favour. Uh, this is uh, Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far <laughs> enough. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. My
This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Is there any point in legalising cannabis if all it's going to do uh, is lead the drug gangs to go and find more dangerous drugs to sell uh, at higher prices and at higher volume, and which are more addictive? because that would appear to be what's happening in certain parts of America. The Mexican drug cartels no longer grow all the marijuana that they used to export to the US because they can't make any money anymore because it's all been legalised. So now they do something much worse, which is to make fake morphine, uh, which is uh, made from chemicals rather than from the poppy, uh, and they make crystal meth, which is one of the most harmful drugs known to man. 03444991000. On the Scotland and uh, refer uh, Scotland independence referendum front, uh, should Scotland become an independent country... Uh, Currently, uh, the vote on Twitter is 63% yes and no and 37% yes. So it's come back a bit uh, in favour of independence. So maybe we've woken up a few SNP supporters. Let's talk to Simon, though, who's in the New Forest, wants to talk about dope. Hello, Simon. Hello, Mike. Are you right? Yeah, very well, sir. What do you want to say? Yeah, so um, just uh, earwigging on your show there, yeah. my, my ears pricked up when you were talking about uh, cannabis. Mm. And I just wanted to... Um, um, add my my sort of thoughts to that. Okay. So, um, I, I'm a taxi driver, and um, I must come across maybe five or six vehicles per day in front of me um, where the drivers are smoking the stuff whilst they are driving. Uh, so this is a, an epidemic, and there's no control over it at all. And I dread to think what will happen if. Uh, if you know a child was to step out in the, in the road in front of one of these vehicles, for example, um, I know it's I know it's them that, that are actually smoking it because it comes straight into my vents behind, right. uh, and I, I just find that smell so so offensive. Uh, it's gotten a lot stronger anybody, as well, hasn't it? It's gotten a lot stronger. It, yeah, it's, it's not. It used to be very. I mean, years ago, sort of, you know, when I was a teenager, it was very fragrant and actually quite pleasant. But the stuff that they're smoking now, it's, well, it's not cannabis, it's skunk. It's everywhere um, that are supplying it is, is a, this super skunk stuff. So that, that by definition makes it worse that there are people driving vehicles whilst uh, using it. But it's, it's, you know, it's so offensive to me that if anybody gets in my car whilst you know having partaken in, in it, let's say, because they stink, I, I stop the car and ask them to, to get out. Yeah, and, and how I do they react to, to that normally? Well, they're a bit shocked. <laughs> you get one or two that are a bit, um, you know, not happy about it, but I say, I'm sorry, you absolutely reek. You obviously, you know, been taking drugs. Um, and yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to be pedantic or a busybody, or you know, because I actually believe that all drugs should be legalised. But I just find that the, the whole selfishness of the, of the marijuana thing with the stench is just so overpowering, and and I don't want that smell anywhere near me. Right. So therefore, you know, if you want to smoke that stuff, that's fine. You do it in your own time, in your own space. But the minute you get into my environment and you stink of it you're going to get out again. And presumably, presumably that wouldn't matter to you whether it was legal or not. I mean, it's a bit like smoking. I mean, people, some people... I mean, funny enough, I used to be a smoker, right? Um, I was on a mm. bus this morning and somebody got on um, who had obviously just had a cigarette and they stank, right? Now, I had no idea yeah. when I was a smoker that that's what I smelled like. Um, but I did, obviously, you know. Um, but what I'm saying to you is if, you're obje if you object to it like that, Simon, presumably if it was legalised, you would still object to it in the same way, right? Uh, or maybe not, because maybe this um, maybe this super skunk strain that stinks might be um, phased out, and they, the government may control it and bring in a, 
the stuff that was around. Because I don't believe that these people are actually specifically going, because it's, it's such an epidemic, I don't believe that people are actually going around saying, right, um, have you got any of that super skunk, please? I think they're just going to get marijuana. So yeah. maybe the government would be able to, to bring that sort of out of the equation. Well, in America, what they do is they sell different strengths. So that, I mean, there's a, there's some celebrity brands, like Willie Nelson, you know, the country western singer, he's got his own brand yeah. of marijuana, and you can get about eight different types of it, from the very weak to the very strong. So, I mean, I'm, my yeah. worry is that if you legalise one drug, then the people who yeah. make the money illegally will just make another illegal a business out of some other drug. This is why this is why I think that all drugs should be legalised and controlled and taxed, um, because it takes the criminal element out of it. How you you know go about doing it, I don't know, but I just think that yeah. you know if you if you if you prohibit something, then it it empowers. Um, criminals to exploit it. It does. It's, um, it's, I mean, normally I've got a, a straight answer for everything. I haven't got an answer for this one, Simon, but thanks for your call. You may well be right. Um, it may well be necessary to legalise all drugs, but I don't know. It doesn't make much sense to me to make it possible for people to get off their faces, although I know uh, with alcohol they can do that. Um, is it the same? Let's talk to Ricky, who's in Glasgow. Hello, Ricky. Hi, I'm Good morning. Good morning. You. Very well. Very nice to speak to you. What do you want to say? Well, first of all, as regards your uh, drugs, legalising drugs, I completely disagree with that gentleman there with the taxi. Uh-huh. Um, well, first of all, it's a public taxi, and if you legalise it, people want to smoke in this taxi good and well. If it doesn't like it, stop the taxi business. Well, no, it doesn't, so, actually, because you can't smoke cigarettes in a taxi, and it's legal to buy and smoke cigarettes, but you just can't smoke them anywhere where there's anybody else uh, likely to be. I have made it legally that way. Yeah, that's but what anyway, I mean. Right. And my main point is... Now, this chap who done this, uh, I think it was an MP or something. He's no, Sir Norman Lamb, yes. All he seemed to offer was hard luck story after hard luck story. That's all he's got to offer is legalised drugs. Shall we say, peace at any price? Well, I mean... You need to start with prohibition on alcohol, mate. At least discuss the subject. Because I've lived, as you know, I've lived in a town with prohibition and it was terrific. Was it? We had full employment, yes, full employment. We had singing, dancing, music, we had concerts, we had choirs. When, when was that, then? Well, uh Kirk and Tullock enjoyed Prohibition from 1927 to 1970. It was about 50 years. Blimey. Uh, oh, no, no. Uh, well, you could have gone to live on one of those islands where it's not allowed, where you can't drink on a Sunday. That's a good idea, too. You know, the wee freeze. But you don't offer your daughters anything now but alcohol and drugs. They don't have anything else. So you can't have, you have to, I'm against legalising it, of course. But uh, your sons and daughters don't have anything else now. What do you mean? Well, what do they have? You're a young man, a young woman, 19, what have you got? Well, you've got uh, Fortnite, for example. You could, win a, you could win a million quid playing Fortnite over in New York. You could watch Love Island, if you like. Uh, you can go on holidays to all parts of the world because it's so cheap. They've got loads so, of things they could be doing. I mean, when I grew up in the 70s, we had nothing. Now, it's a veritable panoply of pleasure that nothing, you can get your hands mate. on. That's rubbish. Well, they might have nothing where you live, Ricky, but I can tell. I'm going to come. I'm going to come to the Glasgow and show you the sights of Glasgow, which you've obviously forgotten about, uh, which are very, very busy and full of young people having a great time. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show ten to one Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.